Well, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles this morning again to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be reading verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Let us pray. Father, thank you this day for the time together, the, the singing to thee of the great and glorious benefits of knowing Christ as Savior and what a great and mighty God thou art. And we thank you for that. And I pray these moments that you would help me by your Holy Spirit to communicate or convey your holy word, your pure word in a way that is honoring to thee and, and represents your holy intention behind it. I thank you that you know the hearts of all men and women, and I, I pray you would open our hearts and, and give us insight, give us understanding into Holy Scripture. And I, I pray it would truly be a help to us as we seek in this world to walk in a way that is pleasing to thee and is honoring to thee. I pray our, our time together would serve those ends, and it would increase our, our trust in thee and our delight in thee, our, our reliance on thee in the living of the Christian life. So might you be exalted in our time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as one uh, moves his or her mind from the middle of chapter 3, uh, into Hebrews chapter 4, the biblical reality that really stands out is God's rest, God's rest uh, for his people. Its first occurrence is back in chapter 3 and verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then again in verse 18 of that chapter, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So both these references in chapter 3 are, are cast in a negative light. It has to do with the wilderness generation. They failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief and disobedience, which at that time, his rest especially referred to uh, the promised land. As one moves into chapter 4, uh, this theme becomes quite predominant. The term rest occurs eight times in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4. So there's a promise remains of entering God's rest. Uh, the experts tell us that verse 1 and verse 11 form what's called an inclusio, which indicates that um, it marks off the section. There, there's parallel statements and followed by a warning. For example, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us fear while the promise remains of entering his rest. Then comes the warning, Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Then verse 11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the fact of a promise remains, but it makes it clear, the fact that the promise remains makes it clear that the ultimate fulfillment is more than the promise of the land. It's more than the promise of the land that we read about in the Old Testament. In due course, the eternal rest for the people of God is heaven. It's entering heaven and being with God. Moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4 and verse 1, it moves from a, a focus on warning to the promise that remains for entering God's rest. Now, there's still a warning, but the, but the accent is, is from the warning to the promise, from the failure of the wilderness generation to the promise of rest remaining for the people of God. Peter O'Brien uh, wrote in, in verses 1 and 2, he moves from a consideration of those who fail to enter God's rest to the promise of rest that is still available today. 
And as we have uh, brought out the, the crucial importance of entering God's rest, it, it's not the temporal existence of Canaan that we read about in the Old Testament, but the eternal rest of being with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And as we zero in on verse 1, we notice that um, our, our response to this reading about the failure of the wilderness generation, our response uh, to the fact that God was angry with them, those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, connoting an accursed kind of death, our response to the force and the power of God's action will evolve, involve a certain disposition, a certain mindset, which will be governed by two further motivations. So that's kind of the track that we're going to consider this morning. First, we're going to look at the disposition that's required in light of the understanding of the wilderness generation, and then two motivations to adopt that disposition. And in terms of... Um, uh, proportion point one is a lot longer than point two and three. So when I get through with point one, don't panic. It's just that's the way it is. So first of all, the disposition that is required, namely the fear of God, the fear of God. The New American Standard reflects the word order of the Greek New Testament. That's first in the sentence, so it receives the emphasis. It's important and it is significant and, and therefore looks back to what has just been written, it draws a conclusion in light of what has been said. So verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, it's an application. Uh, verses 12 through 19. Philip Hughes, in his work on, on Hebrews, I think, uh, makes it, puts the transition well. He says, in the passage which this verse introduces, our author's purpose is to apply to his readers still more insistently the solemn lesson which the history of their forefathers in the wilderness teaches. And in so doing, he makes it plain that the scope of the promise of entering into God's rest extends far beyond the historical event of the entry of the Israelites into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. The possession of the land of Canaan was indeed a fulfillment of promise, but only in a proximate, this-worldly sense. The perspective of faith discerns its ultimate fulfillment in the entry into a heavenly country, a heavenly Jerusalem, in an eternal consummation effected through the redemptive mediation of the incarnate Son. A bit more concisely, Peter O'Brien says the portrayal of the disastrous consequences of the wilderness generation's unbelief with the bodies of Moses' contemporaries strewn around the desert leads to an urgent exhortation that both author and listener should fear God. So the right response to the failure of the wilderness generation and God's anger against them, it is to fear God. That's a disposition that is found further throughout the book of Hebrews. And notice the way the text puts this. The author says, let us fear, which indicates that um, he includes himself as being a practitioner of what he is directing others to do. And that indicates that a disposition or mentality that's not selectively implied, but universally applied. You might recall what the, the Lord said to Satan about Job. He said, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God's assessment of Job was, there's no one like him. And if we ask, well, what sets him apart? He feared God and turned away from evil. Now, in the, kind of in the context of the, the flow of thought, um, the warning of chapter 3 and verse 12, it's just presented here more strongly. As one put it, the warning of chapter 3 and verse 12 is, be careful. That's repeated only, only this time more strongly, let us fear. The danger is no longer described as falling away from the living God, but more specifically, uh, missing the opportunity that God offers to enter his resting place. So the urgency of the exhortation is because the promise of entering his, his rest still remains open. And I might just add, um, 
This urgency to adopt this mindset reveals, I think, a deep level of true concern on the part of the the author for their spiritual welfare. Uh, Peter O'Brien says, our author's aim is to awaken a godly fear in his hearers so that they will be aware of the seriousness of their situation and be moved to persevere. The basic uh, thought of fearing God or the fear of the Lord um, is to have a reverence for his holy being that affects the way one lives, is to regard with feelings of respect and reverence or consider hallowed or exalted to be in awe of. One author wrote, the phrase has to do with an attitude of due reverence and awe in the presence of God, a godly fear of the believer in view of the final day. And Charles Bridges, in his work on Proverbs, says, It's an affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's law. What I want to do under this first heading is offer two comments, and of the two comments, the second one will be a, a bit more expansive. But the first one is this, that the accent in this context uh, for promoting the need to fear God is especially to help the readers, and therefore us, against the careless and cavalier attitude as it relates to rightly responding to the warning of God. The accent in this context on the promoting the need to promote the fear of God is to help the readers guard against a careless and cavalier attitude as it relates to responding to the warnings of God. Not to be dismissive of those, but to take them seriously. Robert Martin, in his commentary on Hebrews, wrote, Here he urges a disposition which will make them better, more cautious hearers of the word. I think Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2 brings out the right mindset. It says, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. One older commentator wrote, it is care, diligence, circumspection, or holy dread of falling short of the promise. It's much like the the mindset in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. John Owen writes, it's this fear of watchful, excuse me, the fear of watchfulness, diligence, and spiritual care. And Philip Hughes wrote, hence the admonition, let us fear lest, for there is no attitude more dangerous for the church than that of unconcern and complacency. There's no attitude more dangerous for the church or for an individual Christian than unconcern and complacency. And um, Robert Martin, I think, adds a, a very helpful, clarifying remark. He says, the Bible, however, does not teach that a sober, cautious fear of coming short of, of heaven by unbelief is unbelief. Indeed, far from seeking to cause unbelief, the writer calls us to a sober regard for God's threatenings so that we will persevere in believing in Christ. So the effect of this and other warnings, it's not to foster unbelief, but a greater, deeper, richer belief in trust in Christ and God and the promises we find in Holy Scripture. Again, an older commentator wrote, the fear inculcated, it's not of a discouraging or desponding nature, nor is it a fear that anything which God hath promised can possibly fail on his part, for such a, a fear would defeat the design of the exhortation, and was the very sin of old Israel, who believed not God, nor trusted in his power and faithfulness to make good his promise to the seed of Abraham. But the fear which is here, which is here exhorted to is a cautious and watchful fear. Now, the second comment I have 
under this heading is to offer a, a few reasons why the fear of the Lord is so important for you and I. So the, the, the second comment here is just some reasons why it is that the fear of the Lord is so important for you and I, why it's a spiritual grace that must be cultivated. One is, and this is a bit subjective on my part, so you can just kind of filter this through your own thinking process. It seems to me we live in a time when the fear of God is not a, a predominant focus of the evangelical world, I, I don't want to sound like I'm omniscient. Um, my exposure is obviously limited, but just in, in my own experience, when I what I read and when I kind of track what, what's going on out there to some extent, the fear of God does not seem to be a, a predominant spiritual grace. But if you read any of the Puritans, you can pick any one, Owen or Flavel or Brooks or Watson, and you can read any Puritan anywhere, and immediately you will sense in their soul a reverence and a fear for the God of the Bible. They're not cavalier, um, but rather that they are you sense a fear of the Lord, which is radically different from the ethos, I think, of our times. Um, <clears throat> a clear reverence for the God for whom we have to do. Uh, secondly, uh, the fear of the Lord reveals an accurate perception of his character. The fear of God reveals an accurate perception of his character. Irreverence or informality reveals defective views of the perfections of the being of God. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The, the acceptable service is with reverence and awe. For this reason, our God is a consuming fire. As one author put it, this brings to mind God's holiness, which was evident in the fiery epiphany at Sinai. It's right to fear the God of the Bible. It befits a proper view of his nature and his character. Thirdly, a true fear of God will deliver us from the fear of man. The fear of man brings a snare. But the way to be delivered from the fear of man is to fear God. Hebrews chapter 3, 13 and verse 5 says, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently may say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? I mean, that's the goal. That's the kind of mindset and outlook that we want to have. And, and I'm arguing that the fear of God delivers from the fear of man. Our Lord is very straightforward on this point. He said in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. Fear him. Now, most of you are familiar with uh, the account of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They refused to fall down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He's enraged at them, as you might recall. He has power to have them thrown into a fiery furnace, and he does so. And it doesn't phase them at all. And just, I'm pulling here from uh, the words of Darius after Daniel came out of the lion's den. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. Now, these men, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they all had a fear of God that delivered them from the fear of man. Well, fourthly, the fear of the Lord is required for God-pleasing worship. 
The fear of God is absolutely necessary for God-honoring, God-pleasing worship. Here's just, I, I think, a straight shot, so to speak, from Psalm chapter 2 and verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Revelation 14, 7 he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Fear God and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. The, the worship, the praise, the adoration of the most high God must be, it must be done with an attitude of reverence and a fear of him. Revelation 19.5, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him small and great. So, so who is called to worship God and praise God? It's those who fear him. They're the only ones that can engage in this kind of activity of soul rightly. Irreverence grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to this verse from Acts chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The two things that go together and complement one another are the fear of the Lord, excuse me, are the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Irreverence grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Fifthly, the fear of the Lord, it leads to holy living. You want to live a holy life. I want to live a holy life. We all want to be godly. I'm arguing the fear of the Lord produces holy living. Let me just come at this from two angles. The first is, is negative. These words are from Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. What accounts for this, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, so for unholy, immoral living to flourish, the character of the God of the Bible, it has to be suppressed. It has to be dismissed. Holiness, godly living is produced, or it's the result of the soul operating under the effects of the fear of God, a reverence for the being of God. Well, in the sixth place, it seems to me the fear of the Lord is the most powerful motive for engaging in the evangelistic enterprise. It's the most powerful motive for true evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, knowing therefore the, the fear of the Lord. The King James translation is, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He's just been making reference to certain final judgments. So he's operating under the certainty of that future reality. And this, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Uh, later on in the, in the book of, of Hebrews, we read a phrase that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, you believe that, and I believe that. Unsaved people don't believe that. But you believe that, and I believe that. So that, that feeds into the motive to want to evangelize them. As Christians, we believe everything that the Bible says about heaven and everything that it says about the place of eternal punishment. And Paul's point here, in, in light of that, when we have opportunity, we, I mean, passing out a track is really good, for sure. But as we have opportunity, we persuade men, we reason with men, we, we try to con convince them of the logic of the gospel. You might recall the apostles 
New American Standard Translation, the Apostles. In the Acts of, of the Apostles, you, you find this phrase over and over again. It, sa- it says they are solemnly testifying. They solemnly are testifying. Um, when they are dealing with unsaved people, there's no sense of, of levity. But they're, they're in blood earnest because the issues that they are dealing with are, are, are of infinite import, infinitely holy and, and weighty import. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So all I'm saying at this particular point is there's no question the fear of God is the God-honoring way to, to live the Christian life. There's, there's, there's no question about this. First Peter 1.17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth. That's the kind of language that we might use when you check into a hotel for three nights and someone says, well, enjoy your stay. And, and the idea here is our stay in this world is not very long. But during that stay, conduct yourselves in fear. Luke 150 says his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Proverbs 28:14 says how blessed, how happy is the man who fears always. Now in the second place, um, there is a, a motivation to live in this way, to fear God. So first of all, we have this disposition that is very clearly brought out of fearing God. Secondly, a first motivation for living in such a way. The text says, while a promise remains of entering his rest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, it's a motivation which emphasizes our duration in this world in light of our current condition. This is the status of, uh, of all who are a part of the church on earth, while a promise remains of entering his rest. It's the, the church militant. Let me three thoughts with respect to this status. Um, first of all, the content of the promise, and it, it's really entering his rest, the promise that remains of entering his rest. And as we have seen in the Old Testament, that was the promised land. So it had a geographical, temporal focus. William Lane wrote where Israel uh, would experience relief from turmoil and security from their enemies. Uh, Deuteronomy 12 makes the point, for you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security. But in the progress of Revelation, we see that the ultimate and more glorious fulfillment of this promise, it's the eternal rest of being with God forever. As Gareth Cockerill put it, the promise of entering God's rest forfeited by the wilderness generation is the promise of a heavenly homeland given to Abraham and guaranteed by an oath. So Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9, by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And I might just add here, although the the fulfillment of this promise is future, when we enter his rest, it it is a promise that is experienced at least to some degree when a person is converted. It's kind of like saying, uh, are you saved? And the Bible says that you are saved, you're being saved, and that you will be saved. But there, there is a sense of rest in the soul when a person first comes to Christ. Probably the best known invitation of the Bible is, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My, my load or my burden is light. Um, there is a rest 
that comes into the soul knowing that all of our sins are forgiven in Christ. There is a subjective peace that's produced by the activity of the Holy Spirit in the soul when a person is converted. But the fullest, richest, deepest experience of that rest is when we enter heaven and are with God. Um, Secondly, the character of the promise is time-sensitive time sensitive. Notice the language, while a promise remains of entering his rest. It indicates there's a a temporal dimension. As one put it, the urgency of the author's exhortation gains additional impetus from the temporal force of the, the participle, not only because, but while a promise of entering his rest remains. It's possible to pass beyond the time of opportunity by forfeiting this promise through unbelief and disobedience. So the emphasis in our time on earth is to continue to believe, to continue to trust, to rely on Christ, to rely on his promises, and to rely on God the Father. Thirdly, it is a promise, this is kind of redundant, but it's a promise enjoyed by continuing in the faith. It's a promise that's enjoyed as we continue in the faith. Faith is conducting one's life on the assumption that the promise of God is certain and that the power to fulfill it is assured. I'm going to read two verses from Hebrews chapter 6, and and Hebrews 6.12 especially sheds light on this. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, verse 12 says this, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That you not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and and patience inherit the promises. So it picks up on this theme of not being careless, but being diligent. And not being sluggish, uh, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. It fits the the import of of while a promise remains. Um, And the condition to avoid here is to be sluggish. That is slow and apathetic. I'm interacting with a, a sermon by the, the Puritan Reverend Mr. Simmons. Uh, the title of the sermon is, how, how May We Get Rid of Spiritual Sloth and Know That Our Activity in Duty Is From the Spirit of God. And it's based on Psalm 119, verse 37, Quicken Thou Me in the Way. And the doctrine that the Reverend Mr. Simmons derives from that is that every saint is very apt to be a slug in the way and work of God. He says every every saint is apt to be a slug in the way and the work of God. That's not very flattering. You know, it's not fly like an eagle or run like a deer, you know, but it's whatever a slug does, slither like a slug. It's just not very flattering, but he's saying we're apt to be like that. So, it's, so the idea is not to live like that with regard to spiritual interests and pursuits for the good of our souls, but to be diligent and through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, in the third place, there's a second motivation to fear God. And, and that is, lest any, of, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Lest any one of you should seem to have come short of it. This is really the heart of the warning. It's parallel to chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the the living God. Here, lest any one of you should seem to come short of it. So the concern here is for each individual is that everyone who starts the race would finish the race. Everyone who begins the race would, would cross the finish line. One put it, the nature of the failure against which Hebrews warns is that none of you be found to have fallen short of entering God's rest. Philip Hughes wrote the Christian too, 
is a pilgrim journeying toward the promised goal, and there is nothing he should dread more than to be judged to have failed to reach it. So the, the right response to, to this warning, um, it's not some kind of spiritual anxiety, but it's a resolve to look to faith and with, look, to, look to Christ, to rely upon him. Again, he says, the consideration of the solemn possibility, so startlingly illustrated by the fate of the generation which perished in the wilderness, should teach, I'm kind of changing his wording a little bit, should teach us to place our trust not in the smallest degree in ourselves, but solely and completely in him who is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him. So this increasing trust in Christ, it's the right response for two reasons. Number one is because there is an abundance in the person of Christ. Thomas Boston, in his human nature and its fourfold state, affirms that through union in Christ, he says the believer uniting with Christ is communion with him, in which he launches forth into an ocean of happiness, is led into a paradise of pleasure, and has a saving interest in the treasure hid in the field of the gospel, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, he speaks of still deriving fresh supplies of grace from the fountain thereof in him by faith and um and also because according to colossians 3 and verse 11 christ is our all and all uh, joel beak and mark jones have written a book called puritan theology they make reference to a, a work by ralph robinson and he kind of helps us to understand uh, what, what does it mean that christ is our all and all and here's here's what he says that he's our life food robe of righteousness protector, physician, light, shepherd, vine, horn of salvation, dew, cornerstone, son of righteousness, precious ointment, consolation, fountain, lamb, bundle of myrrh, way, truth, glory, gift, author and finisher of our faith, rock, sword, desire, covenant, hope, river, power, wisdom, holy one, altar, and uh, holy one, altar, and Passover. Christ is our all. That's enough. That, that is sufficient. So we're, we're a move to trust in him and rely on him and draw fresh supplies of grace by looking to Christ day by day. And let us pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the sufficiency of Christ in living the Christian life. Thank you. You haven't left us to ourselves. And I pray that the effect of considering these texts of Scripture that would be that we would not rely on our own resources at all, but we would abide in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Increase our trust in thee, our devotedness to thee, and might it be for thine honor and thy glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.